Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, August the 30th, 2022. I sometimes like to think of this show as a form of essays, essays perhaps co-written with my guests, but um, I'm a minor video essay writer or performer compared to my guest today, uh, Evan Pushak, who is the founder and creator of The Nerd Writer, one of the, the best known and most successful video essay essayists uh, around these days. Uh, he even has his own Wikipedia page. Uh, interestingly enough, Pushak, who made his name on YouTube uh, with NerdWriter, is now taking his essays, at least according to the Washington Post, to the page rather than vice versa. He has a new collection of essays in book form out today, Escape into Meaning, Essays on Superman, Public Benches, and Other Obsessions. Uh, Evan is joining us, and I'm intrigued and encouraged in some ways because his his essays get huge audiences. One of my favorite ones on The Truman Show, what it teaches us about politics, has had over 2.3 million views and the inevitable video essay on Donald Trump, how to correct Donald Trump in real time, has 1.2 million views. And even if he's enormously successful, Malcolm Gladwell-level successful, I don't think he's going to get millions of readers. So, uh, Evan, welcome. Um, are you looking for readers of this book or quality readers? What kind of eyeballs do you want for this new book? I'm looking for any reader, really. I, I, I'm, I'm excited to, to engage people in a different medium. Uh, like you said, I've been doing YouTube, The Nerd Writer, for 11 years now and have loved doing that show. Um, but it is a different beast. It, you know, the scripts I write for the nerd writer are tools, pieces of a larger puzzle that I'm using to tell the story. And this is my, really my first outing in pure prose. And so I'm excited for anyone to read it, whether it's a nerd writer fan or not. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not discerning of readers. Anybody, everybody is welcome. You have three, 3.1 million subscribers on um, YouTube. I'm assuming those are free subscribers. What, what is your business model on YouTube? So uh, it breaks up into a, a few different ways. Um, yeah, the show is always free and it has been since it's, be it's begun. Um, but I make money. It is my full-time job and I make money from the nerd writer through... AdSense, Google AdSense, which is the, the, the ads that play automatically before the videos through crowdfunding on Patreon um, and through brand deals. Uh, so it's sort of a three-pronged uh, a three -pronged revenue stream. Um, and it, I've been fortunate enough to earn a living doing that work. Well, tell me a little bit more about brand deals. Does that mean you have to wear a certain kind of... Uh form of clothing or shave or not shave with a certain blade? <laughs> no, no. Um, so essentially, you know, it, it is a very 
is a wide range, you know, brand deals cover a wide range of different kinds of partnerships and people do it in the way they feel the most comfortable. For me, I've always wanted to protect the integrity of the show. And so my conditions for brand deals are pretty strict. I don't let the brand uh, give any editorial notes on the video. Almost 99% of the time, they, they do not see the video before the audience does. Um, and so it comes at the end of the video, sort of like a commercial at the end of the video. And um, I have been lucky enough that I've found brands that have trusted me um, to accept those conditions. I think you do leave certain, you know, a certain amount of money on the table by doing that because the more integrated into the video content, the more money you are, you can make. But, um, it's been my interest doing these and it's just personal to me that I, I want it separate from the show and not infringing on the editorial vision of the show at all. Evan, you use the I word integrity. You haven't used its sister word, the A word authentic. Are you an authentic videographer, video, videographical essayist? Is that the, the key, do you think, to your work? Uh, it's integrity, it's authenticity. These are internet words. Yeah, I think, I think um, YouTube audiences, internet audiences are hypersensitive to authenticity. And that goes to your, the content of your work, but also the form of your work. And it, there's a very interesting discussion to be had about the aesthetic of online video and how part of what sets it apart from more legacy media is its lack of polish, um, which is a kind of communication of authenticity to the audience. Um, for me personally, I'm just doing what I'm interested in. I have a great respect for the audience um, but I don't let the audience determine what I make. Um, I'm following sort of an internal barometer. That said, I'm always keeping the audience in mind in YouTube and in the book because when it comes down to it, I'm making it for them. And so I want to be sensitive to being understood and being, being interesting. Um, but what generates the topics both here and both in the nerd writer and on the book is just what I happen to be obsessed with. Well, you're making it for them, but you're also making it for your, your advertisers. And, and, and as you say, your, your brand sponsors. Um, one of the themes in the book is the idea or the ideal of, of public benches, very original and very interesting. Thank you. We did a show, um, last year on redesigning the internet to function like a public park with a digital public activist, Talia Stroud. Do you think that there's a certain amount of dishonesty about the internet on networks like YouTube, which are presented as public spaces, but are actually owned by huge private corporations like Google? And one of the ironies of the internet, as you suggest, your audience is thirsty, enormous appetite for, for the authentic, for, for guys like you who have integrity. And yet there's something profoundly inauthentic and lacking in integrity on the very medium itself. I think that's the paradox of 
the creator economy, what you've just hit on really. I mean, there is this huge, huge, massive outpouring of individual creativity in spaces like YouTube, like TikTok now, um, where you are getting people who have traditionally been marginalized by legacy media are getting the chance to express themselves and to write the rules for themselves. One of the reasons I am so interested in TikTok is because you're seeing young filmmakers get a chance to experiment in ways that just wouldn't really be allowed in the traditional legacy media of Hollywood and television. And so you have that on one side where it is just some of the most experimental, interesting stuff that you'd see. And yet, as you say, it is delivered under the umbrella of these giant corporations. And those corporations exist in large part to gather data on the viewers and users of their product and use that data to sell to advertisers. And so it is, you know, it, it is a, a complicated, complicated space. And I don't know the, I really personally don't know the solution, uh, but I'm heartened by the fact that there is so much beautiful work being made by such a diverse group of people. Do you buy the term surveillance capitalism invented by uh, Shoshana Zubal, old friend of this show? She's been on it a couple of times. Does she mean by that the a capitalism that functions on capturing the data of its users? Yeah, and the users are the ones who think they're in power, but actually it's the corporations and their intermediaries, guys like yourself, who are, do, who, who are, if you like, laughing all the way to the bank. I'm not suggesting you are, and you're, you're clearly someone who is, is in your own way quite authentic. But uh, this, the idea that we're all being watched, and not only that, it's not just 1984, but our, our data is being monetized. I, I mean, I think it's hard to argue with that, frankly. I mean, in, in the second essay in the book called, I think the internet wants to be my mind, mm. I do express this fear and anxiety of what being on these highly addicting spaces is doing to my mind, what, what it's doing to my thinking. Um, and I do harbor that worry. Um, as has been said by many before me, mm. you know, advertisers are the customers of Facebook these and these huge social media platforms and users are the product. I'm not the first to say that, uh, but it is or the last I mean. or the last. And I think it is unquestionably true. Um, so, yeah, I do. I do buy that. Um, I think it's probably a good description of it in, in the essay. I, I really try to dig down personally into an understanding of what actually is happening in my mind when I do get caught as so many of us do in these time sucks and wormholes of the internet, moving from one thing to the next without pause. It is a little alarming to say the least. And then bringing back public benches, 
you know, that really is a kind of antithesis to this, uh, to, to this, to this idea, uh, a space where you can separate from, you know, cause the city itself, much like the internet is a space architecturally designed to foster consumption of all kinds. And the public bench is so radical because it is one of these spaces in the city, one of the very few spaces in major metropolitan cities where there is no consumption required. Yeah, I really like one of the essays in your in, in the collection. I can't remember which one. The one about Flanners and Baudelaire. It, it reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, Lit Hub's Crime Reads editor, Dwyer Murphy, who has a wonderful new book. I think you would actually enjoy it called An Honest Living, which is in many ways uh, a remix in textual and book form of Chinatown in a New York setting, very consciously in a very sort of meta way. Uh, but he talks about the importance of leaving one's iPhone at home and, and he doesn't use the, the metaphor of the, the park bench, but I think it's a central idea in his work too. And it's ironic that he, as the editor of Crime Reads and you as this huge star on YouTube, are both saying real freedom comes from escaping the, the screen and leaving one's iPhone at home. I do think that's a, certainly a, con a paradox in my, my own life and I have said before, you know, it, it is a, I, I, my career has been enabled by these giant internet companies. And, and it, I'm not entirely sure what my career would look like had I been born 15 or 20 years prior. Well, you, so, you, you, you double in that because some of the essays are about your, your first failures as a writer. Um, yeah, absolutely. You would be an unemployed writer. You'd probably be working at your local cafe if they would employ you. And Absolutely. And still, trying to get your novel published. <laughs> but that's what makes the book so interesting. And I, I'm intrigued with the, with the meaning of the meaning, though, or the meaning of the, sub, of the title, uh, Evan, Escape Into Meaning. Um, are you escaping the internet? And are you suggesting that essays in textual form, which don't come with advertising, published in a book, is that your escape into meaning? Uh, I wouldn't say that, no. I think... I still love doing the YouTube show and still will. Um, I do think that what I mean mostly by the title is that meaning itself, finding meaning in these things has been an escape from me, for me from stale mindsets and from, you know, a world in which you follow the patterns that already exist. Um, and so I sort of see the book as, as just another form of expression and a challenge, really a challenge for me to see if I can come back to prose. As you said, 10 years ago, I, I you know, tried publishing a novel, which was not good. <laughs> yeah, well, we've, uh, all, we've all done that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've all lived to regret it or celebrate it one way or the other. You had a a nice essay on uh, from the book uh, on LitHub talking about what you learn about going with the flow when you're doing well and then putting the pen down when you're not. So you learned something from it, even if you didn't publish a book. Of course. Of course. I learned the, the cycling of my own mood, as I say, in the um, in, in the uh, in that essay called Write a Book, which is 
so valuable. I mean, I'm sure anyone who's written can relate that writing is an emotional gauntlet and one that can be very punishing because the critic, the inner critic can be very cruel. And they also happen to be that critic, the most knowledgeable critic about you. And you can't leave that critic on the park <laughs> bench, can you? They're always no, you, you cannot. No, you can't. Although you've got a very nice, um, you've got a very nice review in the Washington Post. Uh, yeah, you're 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 compared. It's quite a compliment with your idol, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Well, actually, ironically enough, I'm looking at this from the Washington Post. They managed to misspell Emerson, which is quite an achievement for the Washington Post. We should. Oh, wow, I didn't notice that. Bezos on the knuckles. Emerson only has one M, uh, guys, but that's another story. Um, you talk about meaning and Emerson. You write about Emerson. For you, meaning is Emersonian. It's about thinking differently from the crowd, leaving the crowd. Is that fair, um, Evan? I do. I mean, I think, you know, the key, the key point that I learn from Emerson. I, I mentioned two in, in, in the essay on him, but... And I hope it, you spelt him right. No two M's. I, I, <laughs> I spelt it right in, in the book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screenshot this. You could need to do an, a video essay on the fact that the Washington Post <laughs> with their highly, highly paid editors still managed to misspell Emerson. It's quite an achievement. Um, I, you know, at one of Emerson's really powerful themes, as you say, is and escape from conformity, really. I mean, that really is one of his, at least in the early essays, one, one of his, his, his strongest principles. And as I say in the essay, it, it can go too far, but it is, and it was a vital thing for me to hear as a young person. But even more than that, it was his ability to express it. The way he did it, the way he captured the thoughts that were in my head in words written 150 years before I was born was the thing that sort of started everything for me. It just blew my mind that you could do that kind of stuff with language. And he is so poetic and so persuasive and in his own way, very experimental, especially in the later smaller, lesser known essays, that it sparked in me just a absolute obsession with trying to put things exactly right. And a reinforcing of the idea that if things are not put exactly right, then you're really not saying what you think you're saying. That form actually determines content in many ways, because language is the medium of thought. And so he was just hugely important for me. And it was an absolute privilege to get a chance to write about him. And the fact and the fact that that, you know, two M's notwithstanding, the fact that they <laughs> compared me even in the same sentence is obviously not justified, but you, very grateful for that. Do you see yourself in that whole, not just Emerson, but that whole transcendentalist tradition? I mean, those guys have quite a lot of critics. Thoreau, for example, who went to Walden Pond and got his mother to do his washing for him. Is there something a little spoilt and male about those guys? Of course. I mean, as there is about 
most writers from early early Amer from the early American canon. Um, there's no question about that, and there are several legitimate criticisms to be made on that school. Um, but there is an appeal to me of transcendentalism. And I think the appeal is a spirituality that is, spirituality is the wrong word, but an ecstatic relationship with the natural world that is not tied to formal religion. Um, of course, the individual members of the transcendental movement may have had, may have been Christian, may have been, you know, relate religious themselves, but I don't read that in there. And I don't think it's a necessary reading. And to me, that was very important because it was the only place that I was seeing at, 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 uh, 1920 that I was age 1920, that I was seeing somebody express a kind of ecstatic joy and a sacredness with the world. How old um, are you now? I'm 30. Uh, I'll be 34 in two days. Wow. You're old, Evan. Uh, oh, here God. we have you, I think as a 22 year old looking, <laughs> I think this is video from your first, um, it's my first your, ever video. First, you look, little lost, but you've certainly refined yourself. Um, talking of meaning and words, you begin the book with a quote from Virginia Woolf from her diary. Yeah. One always sees the soul through words. I mean, Woolf was living at a time, the early history of the cinema. Could one say the same about images? Could one always, could one say one always sees the soul through images? I mean, you also do a lot of video essays on painting. You did an interesting one with, uh, and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, De Chirico, a very interesting uh, uh, 20th century artist. I mean, what is, what, why does, why, why, why begin with that quote and why connect the soul with words and not images? Or can we do, could, could you possibly say one always sees the soul through words and images? I think you absolutely can. I think, for me, the reason I love that quote um, is, first of all, I love love Virginia Woolf, another one of those people who has the ability to capture the thoughts in my head um, and articulate them, um, especially in her essays, which are far, you know, which are very lucid as opposed to the kind of Baroque modernist writing that she did, which is spectacular in its own way in fiction. But the reason I love that quote is because it has a kind of double meaning for me. It's, it's one always sees the soul through words as in one always, the, the, the soul of a human being can only be seen through words or a form of expression or articulation. Like I've been saying, you know, I think that the mind is made up of language. But then also one always sees the soul through words, as in you can see someone, you can see someone's inter, inner being through the words that they use. Now, the reason I think that that also holds for images and film, and obviously I'm a huge lover of film, is that it applies to any form of expression. 
personally, I just, I do believe that in terms of symbolic languages, uh, actual language is the dominant form, but we have many, many forms of symbolic expression. One of them is images, another is film, and there is body language and a million other different kinds, music. So I, I do think you can also amend to that. One always sees the word through words and images, or say one always sees the soul through the expression of that soul. But you clearly see the the essay as the as the uh, the container for all this. Uh, I know you're a big admirer of Chris Marker great film essayist his masterpiece probably was sans soleil i know you're a, you're a fan of that i watched one of your your ted talks there are fewer video essayists or film essayists like marker than the virginia wolves and the ralph waldo emersons of the world and montaigne and so many other essayists i wonder why well i think the answer to that is probably because when you offer when you offer explanations and analysis through language which is what i'm doing at the nerd writer as well through the scripts of course there is the visual element which i hope is necessary for the appreciation of those those videos but it it is a more accessible form of analysis what marker was doing and these other these other kinds of essay video practitioners were far more experimental because they didn't depend on actual explanation in words of what they were trying to say. And I think there's a, it's, it goes beyond, there's a place for that. I think it's, it, they're, it, they're vital and beautiful and amazing, but I do, I do think that they, they will have more trouble finding a wide audience simply because of the amb ambiguity that is inherent in that kind of essay. That said, I'm in love and I, I think, you know, they are deeply, deeply profound and beautiful. You're also in love, not unlike many other Americans, with Superman. You write about him in the book. What is it about Superman? Is it a, a visual or a, 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 um, a literary um, affection that you have for the great man, the great invention? I think, you know, it was the first thing I was ever obsessed with. And there are, uh, there are lots of reasons, there are probably lots of reasons for that, but you know, what I saw in Superman was a what character. What you saw rather than read, of course. Yeah, of course, because I mean, as I say in the book, there's a great quote by Bob Prohl, which is the best version of Superman is whichever version you encountered when you were 12. And the one I encountered at 12 was the Clark Kent on Smallville, a TV show that was on the air 20 years ago or so. Um, and it was this vision of the Clark Kent side of Superman that I thought was extremely compelling. And that's what I write about in the book. Essentially, Superman is accused of always being a very boring character because he's so powerful and so perfect. But what I really saw in that character, in the Clark Kent side of the character, 
was a space where you could explore all the things that physical might couldn't do. The emotional vulnerabilities, the psychological vulnerabilities, that was super interesting. That was what was super, super interesting to me and has, and has been, you know, frankly, a disappointment in a lot of the Superman media of recent years and really all Superman media. Um, but, you know, it was important because it was the first thing that I was obsessed with. And it turned on that kind of way of thinking, that fascination in my brain. And at the time I, I separated it, I demarcated it from academic subjects because it didn't seem like it had anything to do with serious things. The truth is that you can look, look at cultural items of any kind. And it was Superman that led me through comic books, through the TV show and comic books to more sophisticated and more difficult forms of art and thought. And for that reason, I really owe, I owe Superman so much. And, and, and again, have been so lucky that I got a chance to write about him in this book. There's a compatibility between Superman, who you have a great deal of affection for, and park benches, these public places. Because after all, Superman is really the story of the privatization of justice. Um, it's a story about uh, retreating or denying the credibility or the relevance of the state. You're not a very political writer, although one might argue that the absence of politics is in its own way political. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I certainly have my own politics. I don't... Is it the politics of park benches or of Superman, Evan? I, I mean, personally, it's the politics of, uh, uh, of, of park benches, although I don't know if, if I can completely go with the distinction there just because I obviously am in love with Superman. Obviously, there are... <laughs> <laughs> the the the, the problem you understand my point i'm not saying I, you can't like them both but they yeah, are yeah. different that, that they sort of clash in an odd kind of way they do i mean i i definitely hear what you're saying um but in terms of the politics of park benches and this need for urban spaces in metropolitan centers that i talk about in the benches essay yeah that's much closer to my personal beliefs um, and is something, like I say, I encountered, I, I encountered and have thought about much later in life. Um, you're talking to me from Los Angeles. I'm in San Francisco, which is certainly closer, I think, to this urban dystopias than, than, than utopias. And the ideal of the city is a very attractive one, may not exist in America. You write in the book about Blade Runner, 1982 science fiction film, which I actually just rewatched in its entirety at my local cinema in San Francisco, um, which is, of course, a very dystopian book. Um, tell me about your interest in, in Blade Runner and do androids dream of electric sheep and neuromancer you have a very interesting take on these relationships uh from a creative and a creator's point of view yeah i mean i think blade runner is 
interesting to me because it is a film that I have watched countless times and it's a vision that comforts me. And so the question that's that started, funny because uh, yeah, I don't find it a very comforting. It's so it's your it's your Chinatown, uh, uh, just as Dwight Murphy has of Chinatown. You have uh, you have Blade Runner. Yeah, and it's and like you say, it 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 is a dystopia, and so that was just an odd thing that I was noticing about myself that I wanted to just dig into more. And what I discovered was that. Cyberpunk, which Blade Runner is, is the quintessential version of, along with William Gibson's Neuromancer, was for me a fantasy zone in which I could escape from certain difficulties of real life. The world of Blade Runner is a very nihilistic space in which meaning is relative and as a category doesn't really have much value and for me that was a freeing feeling because of course in real life as you're as we've been talking about you have to make meaning for yourself and that's a difficult thing it, whether it's personal meaning or political meaning and I think it's always important to be sensitive to these kinds of spaces that make you feel comfortable because in a sense, the fantasy is illustrative of the thing that you're avoiding. Um, in Blade Runner, you know, it offered me an escape from this difficult work of making meaning from the stifling, sometimes stifling, um, expectations of relationships. Those really aren't important in a cyberpunk universe. Um, and from reductive categories of identification. Um, Blade, cyberpunk in the 80s, when Gibson was writing it, along with other writers, was attempting to mount a critique of global capitalism. And what has happened is that that the, the visions they created have been so enchanting and so beautiful. I mean, Blade Runner, hard to argue, is one of the most beautiful movies ever made. As we move further from this false future that was predicted in the cyberpunk era into a much different kind of future with its own dystopic qualities, um, that alternate timeline actually functions as a kind of a, a kind of nostalgia in a way, an escape from what's dystopic in our own present. Um, and so getting a chance to look at that in the book was, again, another privilege. Um, and getting to the bottom of something that I that I love, you know, I really I really have a deep connection to Blade Runner. Yeah, we we got to end in a minute, but I, I do want to just end with Blade Runner. I mean, it, obviously, it's a it's a film about artificial intelligence. It's a film about replicators, smart machines that are hard to distinguish from human beings. When I watched the film again last week, it seemed to me maybe I'm watching it wrong. 
But it seemed to me that the meaning in the film was in the smart machines. The humans weren't particularly interesting, but the smart machines were. Of course. The replicants were... It, it's all really captured in that final speech by Roy Batty on the rooftop, where he, uh, right after he saves Deckard, the person who has been hunting and trying to kill him, um, he saves him as his last act of life before he's going to die a death of, you know, four pre-programmed years. He essentially says that he expresses his humanity in his lamenting of his loss of life, that the, the, that the memories he had, the things that he saw on the frontier of space are going to disappear like tears in rain. It is a, a beautiful lyrical outpouring of humanity from, like you say, a machine. And so that is certainly, I, I think you are reading it right. I think that is certainly one of the- Or at least watching it, right? So we did a show, it, right? Evan, uh, recently on the metaverse. Mm -hmm. um, we also had Neil Stevenson on the show, the guy who invented oh, really? the idea of that, came up with the word metaverse. I love that. Um, is there meaning in the metaverse? Or is this the thing ultimately, Evan, we're going to be escaping from? And this is, of course, connected with the idea of escape in um, in uh, in uh, Blade Runner. I think you know it's it's. Well, let me start by saying that the 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 cheery vision that is being presented to us by Mark Zuckerberg and others is, I think, deeply, deeply worrying. <laughs> and alarming to me. You can use and, worse words on my show. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is this idea of, will it function as an escape from difficult reality or will it be a place that makes good on the promises that cyberpunk, for example, didn't really make good on, which was that, you know, Donna Haraway has the famous essay uh, on, on cyborgs about how, you know, that kind of thinking was a way to imagine people as more fluid and less prone to labels and categorizations. But the, you know, the majority of cyberpunk is written by white guys and it, 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 didn't make as good as it could have done. And so I think we're faced again with a, a another kind of future here in which we are the ones that really get to choose what it's going to look like um, if we exercise the power to do so. Whether we will and whether it will make good on the promises that it has, clearly the dangers are apparent, but whether it makes good on the promises is something that remains to be seen. Well, one thing you certainly can't do on the metaverse, you you might be able to be Superman, but you can't sign books. Evan Pushak hey. has a tweet where he's signing books. You can't Same sign video essays. So he is an analog man when you pare it all down. That's where the escape into meaning is. Evan, congratulations on the book. We are thrilled in the literary world. I can speak on behalf of all writers and publishers to have you in our world. I hope you won't go back to YouTube, but you probably will. 
congratulations on the book. And you're clearly a, a major new talent, as the Wall Street Journal says. Be looking forward to have you more on the show. So many other issues to talk about. What else are you not watching but reading these days, Evan? Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. And um, what I have been reading, speaking of fantasy uh, and speaking of a fantasy space that is not devised by white guys, I just finished the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. Jemison, which is absolutely astounding um, and highly recommended. Um, just gorgeous, gorgeous fa uh, true fantasy, but written from a completely different perspective and maybe actually definitely the most exciting use of the second person narration that I've ever read. Uh, and I've also been read, and I also just finished uh, Piranesi, um, which is another kind of less uh, world building um, novel by Susanna Clark, but still fantasy, still enchanting and beautiful. It's hard to describe, but highly recommended. And another one that I'll just throw out there, which is I love is uh, Underland by Robert McFarlane, which is about a nonfiction book about all the things that are hap happening underground on Earth and kind of represents something that I'd really love to do, which is a single single subject nonfiction book. Um, so that's what I've been reading and, and loving. <laughs> 